In this episode, I talk with Ian A. Baker, author of seven books and an initiate in Buddhist, Taoist, and Hindu tantric lineages. Ian is an international fellow of the Explorers Club and the Royal Geographic Society, and was joint curator of the 2016 exhibition Tibet's Secret Temple at the Wellcome Collection London. In this interview, we discuss Ian's 25 years living in India and Nepal, seeking out the Bayul, the mysterious hidden lands of the Himalayas, while simultaneously pursuing academic studies at Oxford and Columbia Universities. We discuss the recent movements to make the illustrious Six Yogas of Naropa available to the general public, and hear about Ian's research into the monastic reinterpretation and perhaps even distortion of these tantric techniques of India. We examine the remarkable overlap between Tibetan completion stage practices and the practices of Shakta Tantrism. And we hear stories about Ian's own training in these esoteric disciplines. So without further ado, Ian Baker. Ian, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure to be here. So the obligatory first question, I'm afraid, how did you first become interested in Tibetan Buddhism? Mm. Uh, when I was a teenager, actually, uh, I guess I was 18 years old, and I was in college in America, up in the uh, state of Vermont, and it was sort of the, the tradition that in one's junior year abroad, uh, one would travel, the custom was, to, of course, to, to Europe or you know, France or England or Italy, uh, but the opportunity came up, and this was back in the mid-70s, to go to um, Nepal instead as part of an academic uh, semester abroad program, and the attraction for me then was that because one of my great passions was was rock climbing and mountaineering and the Himalayas, of course, were an incredible draw. And then just the sheer exoticism of uh, of going to Nepal as opposed to, you know, uh, you know the the co coast of France or, or or to England at that time. So uh, it was suddenly um, to descend. And then uh, yeah, I just turned 19. So at the age of 19, I was suddenly found myself in Kathmandu in the night late mid to late 1970s, 77, and I was just enchanted by everything that I saw, you know, both the art, the, you know, the landscapes, the mountains, the people, the culture, and um, very, very quickly after that, because I was then also an art student, and I uh, decided that for my sort of study, focus of study was to be, was going to be Tibetan scroll painting that I wanted to learn, not just study it academically. So I had a, a project advisor at that time who was um, a Canadian man who was very sort of deeply, had been very deeply involved and was a Tibetan translator, et cetera, introduced me not only to his teacher, which was Chatur Rinpoche, who I then met at 19, but they also to a um, to an artist way up in the mountains, uh, who then I, I trekked up to kind of do an apprenticeship in um, Tibetan uh, scroll painting and that that introduced me at that very same sort of um, critical moment. I was more, you know, I was very attracted to mountains and, and uh, the landscape imagery, which there was much more freedom uh, of artistic license as opposed to the deities, which were very prescribed. So when I sort of started you know, expressing my interest in how what the symbolism of waterfalls and mountains, etc., because of my interest as a, in, in climbing, he is the one who further introduced me to, to this idea of hidden lands. Uh, the Bayou, uh, which are these kind of um, the antecedents, if you will, of the whole myth of Shangri-La as these kind of uh, sequestered little remnants of Eden, of uh, lost paradise. And then when I spoke to Chatur Rinpoche about those, he was very excited that I had that interest because that then sort of began my whole um, 
approach, you could say, through Tibetan Buddhism was in a very, very personal relationship with my with my teacher, Tatra Rinpoche, who was sort of very at first amused and then enthused about my interest in sort of going off to practice, you know, not in a, you know, not in a monastery, not even in a little retreat cabin somewhere, but to go off to caves in remote parts of the Himalayas. And the fact that I would go there and not not just not come back early, but actually stay longer, even if I ran out of food, that he was this sort of began a very a uh, different kind of relationship with the tradition and an introduction to the practices in the world that was based upon this very, very personal and evolving relationship with my teacher at that time. And it's around that time, as you say, from the late 70s, you went back and forth between the Himalayas and your academic training at Oxford and Columbia universities, meeting many interesting figures, including Chatra Rinpoche and becoming fascinated by this idea of the Bayul or hidden lands. Can you expand a bit on that and tell us what is a Bayul? What is it that so fascinated you about them? And can you give us an insight into the, your multi-year quest to find one of the most legendary and inaccessible of these hidden lands deep within Tsangpo Gorge? All these things were sort of, for me, sort of magically connected, uh, and but also very, very kind of practically and pragmatically connected in the sense that... Um, you know, I, th- I think this this idea of an earthly paradise is something that's sort of there, you know, at the very roots of human culture. When we think of even what the word paradise means in its original Persian sense, it was an enclosed uh, kind of uh, hunting. It was a it was a hunting preserve, you know, for the great you know the great kings of the past. It was a place where animals were plentiful and the bounty of nature. And obviously, in a kind of early pre-urban um, civilization. You know, these the sense of a bountiful nature was exactly where humans could thrive. And we inherited that even in our own Western mythology of Eden as this sort of um, the idyllic um, context in which humanity is, according to the Christian myth, uh, in a way, was, was sort of came into being. And yet there, but in our Western tradition, paradise was sort of irredeemably lost to us because of our own straying from uh, from essentially from being able to recognize it as our own essential nature. So I was fascinated when I learned that in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, starting with Padmasambhava, so from the 8th century, had identified um, these remote valleys and regions of the Himalayas that were called Beyul. It literally means in Tibetan, the hidden land. And they were described in ways which were very Edenic in the sense that they had very specific criteria, you know, where you had these sort of optimal climates, there were sort of magical animals, there were certainly magical plants that, you know, were very much described in psychotropic terms that would sort of aid enlightenment. The idea was that also, you know, longevity was ensured in such places and, you know, really kind of magical realms. And so, of course, it all sounded, you know, very, you know, for for me at that time at 19, when I first learned about them, uh, my Tibetan teacher at that time, uh, the one who I was learning Tonka painting from, he said, well, you know, there's, they're hidden way behind, you know, we'd point up to the mountains and, you know, they're hidden behind these ridges. Nobody can get to them. They're so hard to reach. But, you know, I was a climber. So that just was an immediate incentive to, to go on this quest to find, you know, some of these hidden lands that were supposedly so difficult to reach that you'd have to climb up, you know, high mountain walls. You know, they were really kind of externalized mandalas where, you know, the outer ring was, was a, almost unattainable mountain heights and rivers, et cetera, et cetera. And so I became fascinated by them and began sort of uh, uh, seeking out the texts that described these hidden lands. And um, 
then with Chapter Rinpoche, uh, who had spent many, many, many years in solitary retreat and was very himself connected to the hidden land tradition because although when I, when I first met him in 1977, he had opened um, the inner reaches of, of, of one of these hidden lands, Beul, uh, Yomo, Kangra, as it's called, the, the hidden land in, encircled by snow mountains. And this is right up near the Tibetan border of Nepal. And so when I started to ask him about the nature of these hidden lands, and I sort of made a list of the ones that I'd been able to identify, he said, oh, well, when you have time, come up to Yomo. It's one of the hidden lands. And then I'll send you into the heart of the Babel, and then you won't have to ask me, you know, what a hidden land is. You'll find out for yourself. So that was kind of my, you know, you could say the invitation to uh, right, right into the very heart of the the tradition uh, practice, but at the same time into an understanding of what the the hidden lands were. So I I went I did that I have was you know, I was working during the the academic year, but I was free in the summers at that time. So I went up to uh, Bayou Mukangra, presented myself to Chatrin and he sent me off to a um, to a cave. Um, and I did that on uh, two successive summers, and he kept sending me to sort of more and more remote places, and then based with particular practices and based on the experiences that I had doing those practices, he would then adjust the, um, you know, what my, my practice was to be. So it was very much a, a wonderful, very one-on-one, uh, -on -one close relationship with a teacher that was, I think, really how a lot of the early tantric um, transmissions occurred. It was not sort of by the book. It were these sort of mass empowerments that we see today happening with hundreds of people where the teacher doesn't even know the name of the, you know, who's gathered there, but rather a very, very close and intimate um, connection with, with the guru in that way. And then practices which were very, in that way, suitable and inspiring for me to do, um, even though they were often ones, you know, I'd never heard of, you didn't find written and described in books. So that was where my kind of induction, as it were, into tantric Buddhist practice and into the hidden lands was a simultaneous kind of phenomena. But to answer your fuller question, it was interesting because as much as I was sort of immersed in living in, you know, in Kathmandu in the late 70s, I still had this part of me that was very uh, dedicated to contextualizing everything that I was learning um, in, um, you know, in a, in a more formal um academic context and so I pursued these advanced degrees in anthropology and then later in history and Buddhist studies and um, as you saw sort of in that first that book I wrote the the, um, the heart of the world which was about sort of the greatest of these hidden lands uh, Pemaku which we'll, we'll talk about <laughs> uh, you know I had this sort of crisis of faith wondering what I was doing sort of in lower Harlem and up upper Manhattan in New York studying about uh, you know advanced esoteric tantric Buddhist practice when all my teachers were at that time back in Nepal and so I, I um, left the program after the first year to go back and pursue kind of a more field-based approach to and a more experiential approach since that's of course really what tantric Buddhism is about is not something to be necessarily kind of dissected on a academic and intellectual level and yet nonetheless I found in a certain sense, the tacking back and forth and the, the interweaving and the integration of these two different modes of the mind, in a certain sense, as, as very fruitful um, and continues to be. And that's why, you know, in the work that I'm doing now, especially with museum curation, you know, I can really draw on the academic background at the same time on the very deep experiential aspect. So I sort of found that particular, um, let's say, 
context of museum curation uh, to really bring together the, you would say, purely, you know, the intellectual and the experiential poles of the tradition and using the art as the vehicle and the metaphor for being able to convey different um, modalities of human experience than tend to be emphasized in our kind of more contemporary Western world, which doesn't necessarily uh, try to give too much uh, attention to this more, the more mystical mode, if you want to call it, of a it's more unitary experience of ourselves as being inseparable from all that we experience and see and hear and taste, etc. So that's sort of a brief kind of uh, way in which the hidden lands and the um, the inner tantric world sort of opened to me simultaneously and the relationships that I had with my teachers and deciding that Kathmandu was really the place I wanted to be based rather than, you know, in an academic context, whether in New York or at Oxford, which I'd been to before that, doing a degree that was both in anthropology and uh, and literature, because I was very interested in the study of other cultures, not in the sort of um, as a social science uh, per se, but much more in a way in which the creative mind um, could, using words and images, could engage with an alternate reality um, and that one would become this sort of just through the sympathetic imagination could enter into uh, imaginatively and experientially. So that was my approach to anthropology was a, you could say sort of it was a I don't know what the word would be, sort of a deep anthropology. It was a sense of, you know, we always talk about participant observation in anthropology, but I was much more interested in the, being an observant participant. So I was sort of switching that sort of general sort of first principle of anthropology to make it more experience-based, but by remaining conscious and present and then finding ways of which that could be conveyed uh, effectively and hopefully usefully to a larger community. That's fascinating. And there, you've, you've covered so much ground there. And I'd like to backtrack, actually, and, you know, highlight some of those, highlight some of those things. But before we do, I'm curious, you're talking about how your academic life and your uh, more experiential uh, explorations informed each other and, and uh, enriched each other. And you talked about how your exper- deep experiential understanding informs your, uh, your academic work and and through the medium of art, you can sort of bring these through two things together or through your exhibits and so on that you've curated. Was there a way in which your academic training enriched or enhanced your practical, experiential, tantric training there in Kathmandu? Mm-hmm. I think very, very much so. And I, I appreciate that question because another one of my main teachers was uh, Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche, and, uh, who I often also received many teachings from and also was very um i don't know amused and intrigued that i that i really had this passion for going off into the wilderness to do my to do practice rather than i I think i was sort of unique among his also his sangha um for that interest that i had in these kind of solitary wilderness retreats and i also spoke to him a bit because i'd come back from oxford on one of these occasions and uh you know, and shared with him, you know, whether this was just a distraction to be kind of these, these academic excursions as, a, you know, whether I should just sort of stay off in the wilderness. And then I remember this sort of beautiful image he used of the two wings of a bird. He said, you know, for a bird to fly and soar, it means, you know, it's both the experiential immersion in the nature of mind that one gains through the, through, through practical, um, um, practice, but at the same time, the intellectual ability to sort of hone and refine 
the mind. He said, that's just, that's equally part of our nature. We're not just, you know, we don't dwell in the mind nature as in sense of a thought-free state of clarity, luminosity, and bliss. On a, you know, we also, you know, have this gift of of the rational mind. And we see that so richly in the Tibetan tradition too, and you know, incredible commentaries, etc. So he was very encouraging of actually trying to sort of bring these two poles together. And in terms of my own practice, I found it very useful because I you know, was there at a time when, you know, there were so many people from the West, of all of us who were almost like in some ways refugees from Western culture, ready to throw ourselves into this exotic um, kind of almost feudal world of, uh, of Eastern mysticism. And I sometimes saw, I mean, actually, we had a term for it in Kathmandu, we sort of called Dharma casualties. And they were people who were in a way sort of went so deep in that there was a kind of loss of perspective sometimes. And some people really had, you know, I think trouble integrating, which of course is the ultimate goal of all of the practices about not just sort of renouncing the world, but actually bringing, having these profound experiences, as it were, on the other side of what would normally be considered the range of, of a possible human experience, and then bringing that back to enrich, you know, the community in which we are naturally, karmically found ourselves. And so I found that in a certain sense, the academic discipline and the rigor of training my mind in that way was a sort of um, a valuable defense against um, kind of completely just letting go of the, you could say, the conventional coordinates of, um, you know, the great legacy we have in the Western world also of, of academic, intellectual, historical training. And there are obviously many things even, in, you know, it's sort of hard to see it right now in the state of America, but you know, there were obviously huge advances in terms of um, social um, normalizing things that were, you know, whether it's egalitarian, gender equality, many things that even, you know, less than a century ago were just still considered anomalous and that we have normalized, even though we're obviously facing a, a kind of crisis in, in terms of Western governmental um, practice. Um, but hopefully this is, again, as it is for many, just a cause for reflection and a refinement. Uh, and so I was very deeply committed to this idea, not of, you know, in terms of Buddhism as a path as it was in its earliest iteration of renunciation, but really one of, as the tantric Buddhist path is based on, on transformation, but even more so in its final kind of context of Dzogchen or Mahamudra, it's really one of integration. It's one which there really is no... Um, viable boundaries between one's activity and one's recognition and just working with the natural, you know, with wisdom and compassion into all human activity. And I think particularly as the world's progressing the way it is that, you know, we can't, it's, it's a luxury and an indulgence to just sort of renounce. And that, that also relates to the idea of the hidden lands as places of kind of elite escape. This is not really something that is um, honorable or noble, <laughs> I think, any longer. And so it's really about taking these traditions, finding ways in which they can enhance and empower a kind of, um, you know, ideally enlightened activism in the world. Um, because without that, you know, the world will continue to sort of go in this direction that is unsustainable. So unless these kind of wisdom traditions, as it were, can actually um, find voice and um, an action in the world, then I think it's just a shame because otherwise we just, we can create little communities and covens, if you will, of, of elite practice and 
individual liberation, but that's not really, I think, what what we neither is what we need in the world, nor is it what these traditions really speak to in their inner essence. You're talking there about integration of uh, these wisdom traditions and what one acquires or learns in them in the world. And of course, one of the most common ways that that's done is through teaching those same traditions or um, uh, either as a, as a teacher of the tradition uh, in a lineage sense or in an academic uh, context, writing about them, translating things and so on and, and making them more broadly available. Do you see any other applications of integration beyond you know, painting the world Buddhist, so to say? Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that it's a really good question. Um, it's, and I guess for me, where I found that um, a different form of integration is through, uh, through art. And uh, in a certain sense, it's where the, tr- the, the path began for me was an interest in art as I started out as a, as a fine arts major and as a painter. So my interest originally in going to Nepal was, of course, the mountains. And then thought, well, if I can learn a painting style there that I can integrate into what I do back, that was the way that I was kind of inducted, um, you could say, into the, into the Tibetan Buddhist world. And in a certain sense, it remains that way now with the work that I'm doing with museums. So, for example, um, about four years ago now, I was invited to be a guest curator for an exhibition uh, that was produced at London's Wellcome uh, Collection connected to the Wellcome Trust, which is a, a foundation that's dedicated to, to the you know, increasing the well-being of uh of humanity and society and in the context of that it was based upon a, a book that I'd done somewhat in collaboration with the Dalai Lama before called the Dalai Lama's Secret Temple Tantric Wall Paintings from Tibet and these were murals that had been created in the end of the 17th century um, that essentially were like a visual encyclopedia of the path to enlightenment that were designed very specifically uh, for the Dalai Lama, starting from the time of the sixth Dalai Lama. And of course, we know the fifth Dalai Lama is really the first one ever to even be designated as such. And this was a vision of the fifth Dalai Lama, but then he died before this uh, private meditation chapel could be built on this little island behind the Potala Palace. And on the third floor of that uh, kind of walk-in mandala were these uh, three walls, which were dedicated to the innermost tantric um, Tibetan Buddhist practices. And the sixth Dalai Lama was the first Dalai Lama to ever sort of see these murals and to practice there. And I think this is very, it's very important because, again, this was how my imagination is. If this basically um, teenage uh, Dalai Lama who had inherited this incredible position of being the spiritual and temporal ruler of Tibet, to find himself in this chamber where one whole wall is dedicated to the Mahasiddhas of, of India and then also the 24 the 25 disciples of Padmasambhava who came to Tibet with and brought Tantric Buddhism in the 8th century. There's not a single monk depicted on the walls. So if you're there sort of going through adolescence as a, to some degree, an accidental Dalai Lama where you've not even been told that this is what you're being raised and trained for, and then you find yourself with a visual encyclopedia surrounding you. Uh, May I interject for a moment? 
could you, could you uh, clarify a little bit there the story as to as to the uh, around the sixth Dalai Lama there you're saying you're you're pointing to that but then you say the accidental Dalai Lama you know the sixth one was the naughty one after all yes, yes. <laughs> so maybe for those that don't know about that you could explain a bit we all know about the current 14th Dalai Lama uh, who has been such an you know incredible inspiration um, you know across cultures uh, over the last few decades but if we look back at the origin of this tradition it really began in the uh, in the 1600s, the mid 1600s, with the identification of uh, the so-called fifth Dalai Lama. He was really the first, and this was a designated. Actually, the term Dalai Lama is Mongolian. And there were sort of Mongolian overlords of Tibet at that time, and then so the the fourth, third, and second, and first Dalai Lama were retroactively named, having been the teachers of the the fifth. So the great fifth, as he's referred to was the uh, the first of these um, who built the Potala Palace, which was this incredible, you know, um, amazing fortress. Uh, then he, when he passed away, uh, there was still the, the construction on the great Potala Palace had not been completed. And Desi Sangi Gyamso, who was the regent of Tibet during that period, uh, actually hid the death of the... Um, of the fifth Dalai Lama so that the construction would continue. And during that same period, he therefore then, uh, since the, the next incarnation of the Dalai Lama would have to be essentially born more or less at the time of the, um, of the death of the fifth, he actually identified this Sanyang Gyantso from a very remote part of the Eastern Himalayas, an area that's now lies in Arunachal Pradesh, India. And basically kept him in training for over a decade, but without ever really revealing what he was being trained for. So this was a very unusual way to sort of grow up as a young boy. Um, and as a result, when he was finally revealed in Lhasa, uh, basically around 1685 um, or 1684, he, as the uh, the reincarnation of the Great Fifth, you know, he was just suddenly uh, you know enthroned and uh, became this sort of god king. And at the same time, never really took to the job, as it were, and have much more interested in. Um, uh, and there's these wonderful love songs of the sixth Dalai Lama that have been translated in various ways, which kind of combine esoteric uh, Buddhist uh, teaching with his own sort of, um, you know, poetic and um, sensibility as a somewhat of a libertine. Um, but there was, you know, the, apparently the Tibetan populace of Lhasa loved him. And whenever he sort of took on a paramour at a particular house, they would paint the house sort of yellow and orange in sort of honor of, um, of all of this. So it was sort of a wonderful, and then he loved to play, he did a lot of archery in the, this sort of, um, almost like a forest at that time that was behind the Potala Palace, which is where they dredged out a, what became a lake in, to, in order to build the Patala Palace, a great lake had formed. And the fifth Dalai Lama had had a vision in his own lifetime that uh, the kind of the Naga Lord, um, the queen, the the great, uh, you know, kind of lords, as it were, of the sort of underworld, uh, you know, had been disturbed by this uh, excavation. The Naga Lords sort of appeared in a vision to the fifth Dalai Lama, but he passed away before he could fulfill this vow to create a temple for these sort of phonic energies of the underworld um, in a form of a three-dimensional mandala on an island in this lake behind the form behind the Potala. Uh, and it was left to um, Desi Sangi Gyamso, his regent, uh, to fulfill that vision. 
during the the lifetime of the sixth Dalai Lama, which was very short. He, the sixth Dalai Lama sort of disappears from the scene by his early 20s. But it was during that time that this temple was created, and it became not only a place for spiritual retreat for the sixth Dalai Lama, but certainly also a place where he kind of retired to kind of get away from the responsibilities of state and could kind of disappear with his paramours and his his pen poetry and do archery on the in the the gardens behind so it's an amazing little temple but as i said before uh the the third floor of the temple is dedicated on three walls to um outlining the whole most esoteric and innermost practices of the inner tantras so one whole wall is dedicated to the mahasiddhas who were these great um the great realized adepts who lived in India between the 8th and the 11th century, who all of the tantric Buddhist lineages in Tibet derive from. But what's interesting is that so many of these uh, Mahasiddhas were themselves very, very critical of monastic Buddhist culture, and they were often very iconoclastic in terms of how they were um, approached. The they sort of, It was the takeaway from the so-called Vajrayana diamond vehicle of, and and instead emphasizing sahaja the natural effortless spontaneous recognition of the nature of mind through the inner yogic practices which were not dependent upon a kind of renunciate disposition as was practiced in in monasteries and uh, the sixth Dalai Lama himself was recognized as being a, as an emanation of Saraha who was one of the greatest of the the so-called Mahasiddhas and whose songs are well-known and often the most iconoclastic in terms of their critique of monastic culture. So in that respect, it's very, very understandable that the sixth Dalai Lama would have felt that wearing robes was not really appropriate. And he gave back his robes, and he sort of took ordination as a lay Dzogchen practitioner, the so-called Great Perfection, which in a way is a direct... Um, expression of this idea of sahajananda the spontaneous bliss which was the fourth state of bliss that arises out of the inner tantric practices and which was really the point of departure for Dzogchen, which was recognizing buddha nature is not something that had to be cultivated but something that just needed to be recognized as being part of our of our um, ordinary mind stream and yet uh so it was more a, play, a process of recognition than cultivation so the sixth Dalai lama was exposed to all of this and obviously that oriented the whole way that he approached the spiritual path himself but what's extraordinary about the paintings on the other two sides of the walls of the temple one of which really shows in essence the the physical yogas which are very otherwise really kept secret in the tibetan tradition so the whole ways in which the body and the breath and uh, the mind are uh, mobilized and activated in order to bring about this sort of shift of consciousness so those paintings are extraordinary uh, made right at the end of the 17th century and then the other wall is dedicated to um to the Dzogchen, to, so these are these very, very esoteric visionary practices that are done, you know, complicated to explain, but you know, through a uh, intermediate uh, level of perception that begins by, in a certain sense, concentrating on entoptic um, visionary phenomena, in other words, optical phenomena that occur literally within white blood cells that are transiting through um, through the retinal capillaries. And of course, it wasn't understood in that way or described in that way at that time. But these things we can see, we can see these kind of spherical shapes against a, a dark blue sky, etc. But that became the basis for a whole visionary optical yoga, if you will, that was fundamental to Dzogchen. So these were what the Dalai Lama was exposed to. 
and which certainly conditioned the way he um, approached the path, as it were, and his role as a, as a spiritual and temporal leader in Tibet. So this really speaks to what, you know, your question was, is, you know, what did I find as a as an appropriate vehicle to integrate both the the academic and intellectual historical um, perspective on the tantric Buddhist path and the experiential. And I found that these particular murals in particular, because they're really the only any only place in Tibet where this kind of innermost teachings were ever expressed visually. Normally what we see in the very colorful murals and wall paintings in Tibetan monasteries are the outer forms, the deities, and you know, which were very appropriate for a kind of illiterate, in the most case, pilgrims who would come in and sort of be in awe of this kind of extraordinary universe that was presented to them. That the, the lamas were, you know, in a certain sense, the, the 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 supreme magicians who who had control over that realm. But these inner practices, which is a way in which that all of that could be really understood and contextualized is what the six Dalai Lama was exposed to and which in this exhibition in 19, uh, sorry, 2015, 2016 that we put on in London, the welcome collection was to recreate life-size replicas of these murals and present them as backlit light boxes in a kind of modernist interpretation of this chamber as a contemplative space in which one could even as a contemporary audience that was uninitiated into tradition recognize a whole spectrum of potential human experience that is not sort of let's say enshrined within our own cultural uh, traditions and so therefore it became i think very inspirational for many people and that led to kind of the other work that i did when this recent publication of a book that draws largely from the material that I put together for that exhibition called Tibetan Yoga Principles and Practices. I mean, it has this sort of rather, uh, that was the, the publishers who gave it that, uh, the subtitle. Originally, it was The Art of Transformation, uh, because I really was trying to present it in a very visual and more evocative way. But the you know, practice... So practices and principles is essentially what it's about, but it was presented in a more kind of visually engaging and uh, hopefully poetic way so that it could uh, be something that could inspire and that people could relate to, uh, even if they weren't sort of initiates of the tradition. And it was a departure from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition in the sense that it was presenting these so-called secret yogic practices that by convention were not normally taught until one had been in the tradition for you know a very long period but as my own research showed and also my own discussions with you know the great sort of lamas of our time a lot of these practices were secret because they weren't appropriate for monks it's not that they weren't appropriate for lay people so this is something that sort of has become confused in the tradition because it was such a monastic culture in tibet we sort of forget that so-called the six yogas uh, which are a kind of series of six yogic practices that can be done at all times of day and in the whole life cycle from birth to death, etc. Uh, these were not originally to be sort of taught even in necessarily in a retreat context, let alone in a monastic context. They were things that one could integrate into one's everyday life from the moment one wakes up to uh, to the yogas of sleep, the yogas of sexual union, the yogas of dream, the yogas of clear light. Um, the yogas of, you know, working with the, the sort of energetic um, anatomy of the physical body in order to kind of transcend our mundane perception and the way we engage the world. So this is really what that book, the Tibetan Yoga Principles and Practices, it follows the, the, the six yogas that were 
uh, kind of enshrined as the six yogas of Naropa, who was a great Mahasiddha, you know, along with Saraha and others. But these were six yogas that were transmitted to him by his teacher, Tilopa, who had again been a great academician, a, a kind of a, a royal priest who decided, like Naropa, that that wasn't where he was going to find his own uh, ultimate uh, realization. And both of them, you know, had sort of left, as it were, institutional Buddhism and left the academy uh, to sort of go off into the jungles to find this sort of final um, uh, level of experience that would sort of give, um, optimize their own potential as, as, as human beings on the spiritual path. And Tilopa, interestingly, I find, you know, so where did these six yogas, as it were, which became kind of the core essence of the inner tantric tradition originate? Uh, we also have from Tilopa's own life story. It's not that he just sort of, they are extracts from the prevailing and most important uh, existing Buddhist tantras of his time. So, for example, he took the yoga of inner fire, Tumo from the Hevajra Tantra, and he took the yogas of clear light from the Gliya Samaja Tantra. So they represent a kind of takeaway from the core uh, Buddhist tantras and like what is it that really, you know, one needs to focus on in order to achieve this kind of liberation from our own mundane preoccupations and orientations towards life. But interestingly, in Tilopa's own life story, he received these six yogas from a a green yogini in the hidden land, essentially, of Udhyana, and for somewhere up on the northwest frontiers of India. So I've always been fascinated by the idea of, you know, who was the green dakini, the green yogini that, you know, basically taught Tilopa. And again, it could be a, a mythopoetic kind of um, origin story. But what it speaks to is the fact that, as in all of the tantras, it's kind of, there's a there's a feminine matrix, a genetrix of the whole... Um, tradition that I think is relevant in our world today, especially since the patriarchal monastic tradition in a certain sense co-opted uh, so much of the uh, the tradition and kind of sanitized it and made it uh, these practices possible for monks following monastic you know law and Vinaya to practice things that really, in a certain sense, as, you know, Dzogchen Punlop Rinpoche sort of famously said, you know, Vajrayana was not made for monks. Yes, monks can practice it, but only if they kind of contort and reinterpret the meaning and practice it in a way that's more, you know, symbolic. And But my view is that this is something that needs to be brought out more because for Westerners to be doing that who don't have this particular problem, of uh, you know holding monastic vows and trying to practice tantra, it's important to sort of discern, and this is where I think the academic um, and historical approach is important to sort of discern, for example, what the Hevajra tantra was before it became a a kind of central uh, practice of the Sakya monastic tradition. So, for example, I'm doing research now with one of the last holders of the Indian uh, Hevajra tradition, who's like a more like a sadhu, more like a yogi. And he was actually very, very critical. He lived way off in the jungles up near Darjeeling, but you know, very critical of the the way the monastic um, Tibetan tradition has, in a certain sense, reinterpreted. Like, for example, there's many instances in the Hevajra Tantra where it says the yogin must sing and dance. The yogin must sing and dance. And so there was a kind of very much an embodied and sensual expansion uh, with an intergender practice within Hevajra originally as he will explain it. But then when we look at how the Sakya 
tradition, for example, explains even that recurring phrase, uh, singing and dancing is meant to be able, singing is to recognize the, is the mantra that you recognize internally when you recognize, you know, your, your co-dimensionality with the Dharmakaya, with, you know, all, you know, all universal space. And the dance is the activation of these internal, uh, the Dakas and Dakinis as they arise within the, the central, within the chakras of the subtle body. So all of that makes sense, but it also, it makes sense for, on an inner level, for a monk to be able to safely interpret such language. And so we talk about the twilight language in the Tantras, which is a way, a symbolic language to keep it from being misunderstood by non-initiates. But that never really quite makes sense when we think about the the how immediate and sensual the twilight language is. You'd think you'd rather do it the other way, where you'd actually try to make it seem very sanitized on the surface, but there would be a hidden practice and meaning. So all of this happens to do, I think, with this kind of, some degree, intellectual dissonance that has resulted in a monastic interpretation of tantric practices that, from all we know historically, we're very much about engaging and you know, sort of in a certain sense transcending the Brahmanical kind of caste structured world in which the human experience was was constrained within social conventions and um, all kinds of other limiting factors and was really more of a Dionysian, um, you could say, polarity within an otherwise you know, to use that Nietzschean sort of dialectic of the Apollonian sort of ordered world. So I often think of Tantric Buddhism and its genesis that way as a more almost kind of Dionysian. Dionysus being, you know, the Greek god of kind of divine intoxication, of transcendence. You know, obviously a lot of elements in common with the Shaiva traditions in, in Tibet. And so obviously we also know that there was a lot of borrowing from the Shaiva Tantras. You know, for example, there were direct passages in the Chakrasambhara Tantra that were plagiarized directly from pre-existing Shaiva Tantras. So, but when it comes to the level of practice, you know, actually the Shaiva Tantras and the Buddhist Tantras were working with the same human, you know, psycho, psychoenergetic anatomy. And that's where my interest is. And I think this is really where these practices are relevant in the contemporary world, not about allegiance to, you know, Hindu or Buddhist um, uh, streams of transmission, but really to the, the stream of transmission that's actually biophysical within our own organisms. And I think this is the challenge, to go back to your original question of integration, is to kind of by really a kind of honing in on the historical evolution of these traditions, which the Tibetans don't really, they're not interested in doing. They have a kind of mythopoetic historical perspective, but it doesn't really go into, well, how were these practices done differently in India prior to the transmission to Tibet, where they became part of a theocracy, which we have to accept was the reality. And therefore, for Westerners, how can these practices be done in a way that is um, uh, not just truthful to their original genesis within a, within a Brahmanical world of ancient India, which isn't relevant either, but you know, taking the body as the path and how we can actually bring about a more informed and you know bring more wisdom and compassion into our actions in the world and that's where i think you know again this idea of uh, enlightened activism to me is really where and and the kind of practices that can support that 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 to me is what's interesting uh at this stage and you could say the global evolution of tantric buddhism yeah that's fascinating that's quite heretical a lot of what you're saying there Beautiful, oh, yeah. beautifully beautifully presented but uh nonetheless uh, quite heretical in some ways and i'd, I'd love to to ask you about a couple of those aspects you know you're you're talking there about 
this allegiance to certain streams, whether it be Buddhism or Hinduism or these sorts of forms. Um, and of course, that's something that's very strongly emphasized in the Tibetan tradition, which is that of lineage and mm-hmm. requiring certain transmissions. And, re- and there, these sorts of things come often with fairly hefty penalties for straying outside of the of the Samaya or the vows that one takes to become sort of part of that, uh, if you want, um, tantric club, if you yes. will. Um, yes. and, but also, so I'm curious as to if you have a, 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 some, some thoughts on, on that, I suspect you might, mm-hmm. but also as to the other ways in which you've seen the monastic tradition from your research sanitize or contort. And I'm also very curious about, you know, you mentioned there that often these yogas aren't, weren't even really taught in retreat. Now, of course, in the, in the Kagyu tradition, for instance, the six yogas are almost always said, well, you have to do it in a three-year retreat. You know, we yeah. can't sort of teach you bit by bit by bit. So I'd be curious, if not in retreat, how? Mm-hmm. And how were these things systematically translated? Because what, one of the benefits of a retreat situation, I would imagine, not having done it though, is that you get you can you can have the curriculum implanted so that yeah. there's a sense of reproduction of the mm-hmm. of the of the base material. The problem with the one-on-one sort of approach is that surely through each generation the material would take on a new hue or a new order or a new emphasis. Uh, would mm-hmm. things be lost? How would the essential things be pr- preserved? And I don't know if that has any link to how you were trained with, in, in, with people like Chatra Rinpoche. So there's an awful lot of things there. But feel free to just pick up on the first couple and I can come back to that second one. Yes. So so to pick up on some of those themes, uh, really beginning where you where, where you started with this idea of, let's say, the relationship within all religious traditions, let's say, between heresy and revelation. You know, some things that in a certain sense are considered to be heretical simply because they go against the prevailing convention and then they become normalized and be, become the new normal. You know, we have instances of that even in Christianity and things like that. At the same time, we have it the other way around with the invention of original sin, for example, which you could actually say was a heresy because it was not there in the original teachings. So this idea of heresy meaning essentially a kind of radical innovation sometimes that either becomes inappropriate or becomes as it was often innovation, let's say, within the tantric Buddhist tradition, of course, as we know, was mostly done through the so-called terma tradition, the the treasure revelations that could either be in the form of so-called teachings that had been written uh, and recorded in an earlier century, but were considered to be kind of too radical for people to accept at the time and therefore revealed by followers of of Padmasambhava or emanations of Padmasambhava centuries later. Or they were gongter, they were actually treasure, mind treasures that were revealed in the minds of those who were in the stream of, of Padmasambhava uh, in that lineage and being teachings that were considered to be radical and relevant for the current time and place in which those revelations occurred. So these weren't heresies in the sense that because they were still, of course, still following the basic fundamental model. But I think there were absolutely innovations within the tantric Buddhist tradition in Tibet that were totally departures, you could say, from uh, Indian tantriana, if we want to call it that. So, for example, if we think about the six yogas, just to take that as an example, from what we understood, understand, even if we even refer to the textual sources, and if we think of Tilopa having received these teachings of the six yogas from the green Dakini, as it were, of Udhyana, this land where Padmasambhava was allegedly uh, sort of born in the 8th century, uh, this being sort of the same era, you know, actually a couple of years, centuries before uh, Tilopa. 
um, and then transmitting to Naropa had already left the monastic fold. We don't see any emphasis in the in the Buddhist uh, Tibetan Buddhist root tantras on you know certainly three year retreat was kind of a uh, a, a Tibetan invention, uh, part of the, um, you know, it was an, a cultural adaptation and accommodation um, that was suitable for time and place. But, it's, you know, we don't find anything along those lines in the root tantras. We see a lot of emphasis on periods of intensive retreat, like, for example, the Kala Chakra Tantra in particular, the idea of dark retreat as being a way of intensifying experience so that the rising of the empty forms which are very analogous to some of the visionary phenomena within the Dzogchen tradition for example can be cultivated in a very intensive kind of pressure cooker as it were context um but at the same time uh when we look at the lineage of the six yogas um i mean they were brought by naropa then marpa who was a complete late uh, he was a you know the great Marpa, the translator. He he received these teachings from Matripa and from and Naropa, supposedly directly, or from probably from a, more likely a disciple of Naropa. But then these were, you know, he was a householder. Uh, you know, he had a farm in southern Tibet, and you know, children and wife, and uh, taught uh, Milarepa. You know, who was the sort of the you know the very very famous. Uh, and a poet laureate of Tibet. Who also turned green, didn't he? He turned green from eating nettles. That's true. There's some secret symbolism there. But he never, you know, he, for example, one of his songs says, let others go to the monasteries to light butter lamps. I'll stay here in this cave and light the butter lamp in my heart. So again, a kind of more iconoclastic, radical departure and disinterest in the, in you could say, monastic convention. And then his two, and this sort of comes back to the issue, he had sort of two heart disciples himself, Gampopa, who was perhaps better known because he was the one who, having been a Kadampa monk previously, was the one who kind of brought these teachings of Naropa and the six yogas, the Tumo in particular, that, that uh, you know, that, uh, that uh, Milarepa practiced and kind of codified it within a monastic context of the early Kagyu monastic orders. And then Rei Chungpa, who was much more the yogi, who then went off to Kashmir to study with these female Mahasiddhas of Sukhasiddhi and Niguma and received their transmission of the six yogas from a female line of transmission, the Niguma line and the Sukhasiddhi being actually more, in a way, elemental, simplified, and um, arguably powerful, and of course then transmitted within the Shankpa Kargyu tradition. But again, um, you know, having talked with many you know, practitioners and Kalavran Bache before, you know, yes, of course, they do practice that in three-year retreat. But the idea of it, and even as Dzogchen Pulna Rinpoche said, these were ideas, these were practices so that you could practice at every aspect of your life, you know, in your relationship with your with your partner, uh, in relationship to falling asleep at night or in the morning or, you know, with Tumo. All of these things were actually had both pragmatic and sort of spiritual um ramifications and so they were actually a complete integration you could say of our everyday ordinary human experience but by in a certain sense sacralizing ordinary human experience from sexual relationship to to dreaming to sleeping to dying all of this was a sacralization process let's say as opposed to a monasticization process which was really essentially an institutionalization of practices which are really organic because they relate to our everyday experience we all dream we all may make love we all you know, have this whole kind of connectedness to the what is the vitalizing principle within our own psychophysical organism. So, 
you know, speaking of it in those terms, I think the um, I think it's important again to look historically when we look at, for example, the so-called the Trukor and you know the the Yantra Yoga, these activating yogic movements that were actually to uh, increase the vitality in the body so that Tumo could be practiced more effectively. They were also connected very much with the sexual yogas and were. If we look at the very roots of those, even in the Tibetan tradition with Pagmadrupa. He very, very specifically says that these movements, they're to be practiced by anyone, uh, beginner or expert alike, and that they can benefit everybody in terms on a relative level in terms of health and vitality and on a on a deeper level in terms of spiritual practice by sort of removing, you know, obstacles and impediments to the with the flow of energy through the subtle body. So really, when we and the Amrita Siddhi, which is now sort of recognized as being this incredible text that was well, the first written uh, version of it has from the 11th century, but the, um, the, this perfection of nectar, which is really the first description of the, of the whole, uh, uh, psychophysical organism in the central channel. And in that text in particular, it also says this is to be practiced by everybody because this is what brings about direct results. It was nothing about any kind of monastic, um, you know, intellectual property, uh, right over. And it was taught by, uh, you know, we came from India to Tibet. It was the movements associated with it were transmitted within the Shangpa Kargyu lineage. But the core practice, which is like kind of a proto-Tumo practice or proto-Kundalini practice, it, within the root text says, you know, spread this widely. This is not to be kept hidden. And so I think this is what we really look at when we can see, if we go back to the origins, there were, you know, there were practical reasons to keep sort of radical teachings a little bit in kind of elite circles. But there wasn't this whole idea that, you know, that, you know, if some tantric uh, demon was going to come down and kind of uh, throw you down into the lower realms if you, uh, when I actually brought this up with the Dalai Lama, and that these are sort of practical examples, uh, I said, oh, you know, what about if I'm, because he, he is the one who actually asked me to make the book about the Lukang yeah. murals. And I said, well, what about Ekajati, you know, the protector of the Dzogchen, the you know, one-eyed sort of cyclops woman who's the protector of the Dzogchen lineage mm -hmm. and you're not supposed to reveal these things. And he goes, he just laughed. He said, Ekajati will help you. <laughs> so he he cut through my own, you could say, kind of uh, feudal mind and and sort of superstition to to totally break me out of that trance. And I'm going to tell a couple other little examples of very, very great, you know, teachers who, again, sort of even help disabuse me of this level of kind of just superstitious uh, allegiance to cultural convention. So, for example, with the Trukor, when uh, Tukurigin, you know, the great Dzogchen master, um, you know, when I was I had gone to India, I was working actually because I, I kind of crossed traditions. I had also practiced quite a lot in the Kaula Shaiva tradition as well, because there's a very, very embodied approach to to a lot of things. And I found that Nofum was a key to understanding core inner tantric yoga practices within the Tibetan tradition. But when I talked to him about, you know, a lot of the physical yogas that uh, were part of that, he um, he said, honestly, he said, since you've had pointing out, <laughs> you know, you have the Dzogchen view. Um, Actually, the Indians are much better at yoga than the Tibetans. It was too cold in Tibet. You know, we had to wear these big, you know, robes. And so there's no, he said, better to study with Indian yoga masters and just maintaining the view of Dzogchen. He said, actually, that, that can be a more effective. That was sort of a secret, you know, teaching not to be widely distributed. But at the same time, this was already, you know, 15, whatever it was, 20 years ago. But the point being is, and then Chakra Rinpoche, the same thing. He said, in the, really, from when 
on the level of Dzogchen, the practice becomes whatever it is that brings you back into this embodied view, as it were, you know, the viewless view. It's not, he said, whether, and he literally said, whether it's Hindu, whether it's called Hindu or Buddhist doesn't matter. It's, it's the, it's the practice that's effective that matters. And it's really emphasizing at that point in, in Dzogchen that it's about transcending uh, culture, transcending uh, cultural convention. And I think this is very, we see that already embodied within a lot of the, the Dzogchen teachings. Um, but sometimes we feel at the same time, at the last moment, it gets kind of, there's the intellectual property rights that are assumed by the by the institutional forms of, of, of Tibetan Buddhism, say, no, well, we, you know, this is sort of, our, we own this, and this is the way you do it, and it's not appropriate to do it in another way. But many lamas will also say, because this has always been a, you know, what I discuss with them, it's like, well, this is just it's the way we've been taught. This is the way we it's been held by the tradition. Um, but this idea of lineage, um, you know, how that's to be understood. And of course, there's outer inner secret lineage and there's the outer forms, which are cultural, the inner ones, which are bioenergetic, essentially. And we know, like in the Zen tradition, when that tradition was criticized for not having patriarchs going back to the time of the Buddha, they invented 15 of them just to sort of fit the bill with a recognition in that sort of antinomian tradition that, um, you know, a lot of this is just to sort of uh, appease the, you know, the, the cultural mind. So this is, again, sort of bordering on the heretical in the sense that, you know, to what degree do we uh, depart from convention and to what degree do we adhere to it? But if we really look at the history and evolution of the tantric tradition, it was a radically creative and innovative tradition, of course, ascribing all of these tantras to kind of divine manifestation from celestial Buddhas and um, but in the end, they were written down by human beings, and uh, even if they were anonymously authored, they were radical departures from anything that Buddhism had ever been in the past. So to me, it's sort of interesting to think that between the 6th, 7th century, with the appearance of the Guya Samaja Tantra and the Kala Chakra Tantra from 10th, 11th century as a sort of final uh, efflorescence of this tantric creativity, uh, to think that it just stopped a thousand years ago, and that no one sort of dares to kind of be as radical as those uh, innovations were, especially with the Kala Chakra, because it was such a grand synthesis at the time of all knowledge, scientific, astrological, medical, you know, it was, it was the Encyclopedia Britannica Spiritu Spiritualica, you know, it was everything. And we know that a lot of the Dzogchen techniques, as they later developed in Tibet, were, there, there's so much analogy with the, the empty forms that arise in the dark retreats that it's not far-fetched to to think that there was an influence of Kala Chakra on the evolution of the so-called 17 um, Dzogchen Tantras, because so many of the methods and techniques are the same. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. So, so for me, just to go back to the essence of that, the, the path, the integration is through the art, through uh, the aesthetics. I think there's the, the Tantric uh, aesthetics themselves, if you want to call it that, the Yabyum imagery, this idea of a, kind of an entangled universe represented as anthropomorphic male female deities in 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 intimate and ecstatic union to some degree speak for themselves and when we think of the monastic tradition of buddhism which you're not even supposed to think about women uh you know but at the same time we have on the walls of monasteries you know beautiful naked dakinis you know dancing in celestial space and 
visualizations of copulating tantric deities in the term form of Vajrasattva, even as an entryway and a gateway deity into the and imagining this kind of nectarous fluid flowing down your spine, it doesn't really accord as Zoksar, as um Zokshin Punlap Rinpoche said, you know, these weren't practices for monks, these were for lay people. Uh, who could therefore bring about a more spiritual and expansive um, engagement with their everyday experience. This is what they were for. And he says, yes, you can do them as monks or nuns, but you've got to kind of twist the logic around. And I think this is what becomes confusing for a lot of Westerners, because we feel an allegiance to how we're told by kind of authoritative figures. But if we just really look at the root texts themselves, and if we look at the history, we can begin to understand that you know, that there's some allowance for a different perspective than might be necessarily held by by the lamas who in are being trained to basically become almost um, this idea of empowerment and initiation is so different now. I mean, we talk about departure from tradition, talk about heresy, you know, to be giving an, a tantric empowerment to a thousand people over Skype. And uh, this is total heresy from the point of view of early Buddhist Tantra. You know, when it was never more, you know, there would be eight people, you know, there were certain kind of limits, particular Tantras that should never be given by from the teacher to more than a certain number, and there were certain... So, in that sense, uh, you know, if we really want to had a discussion on, on heresy, we could really say that Tibetans really took things in a whole new direction, and it served the great purpose of preserving uh, and this is, again, I want to go back to the monastic, where I think, of course, its great value has lied as it's been the great preserver of tradition. It hasn't been the, it hasn't been where innovation has taken place, which is really the Mahasiddhas who dropped out of that system. But they have preserved uh, this incredible legacy of, you know, the, 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 the archives are there within this institutional form and the, the, the empowerments as they are even still transmitted to you know, hundreds of people at a time. As nothing in the root tantras that would ever accept that as being even permissible, and yet it's done because it serves a kind of pragmatic purpose of preserving culture and preserving tantric Buddhism as a cultural modality. But my argument would be that I think in the West, for all these things to be relevant in our current age, we need to sometimes be a little bit more free thinking about how these, what these really practices were for, what they're about, and how they can be best um, practiced, understood in a contemporary period that we're in now yeah that's that's fascinating and i'd love to get your thoughts on on that leap as you've called it from uh, into western culture of some of these particularly uh, esoteric tantric practices um mm-hmm. in the 90s you write here in your book uh, heart of the world um in the 1980s in order to delve more deeply into these arcane practices i studied in south india with a tantric master who placed me on a diet of cinnabar and gold dust my assigned consort Uma Devi, had been raised in the temple since the age of six. In the weeks before initiation, she lived on crushed rose petals and powdered pearls that had been dried under the rays of the moon. In later retreats, I used preparations from the Chandra Maharashana Tantra that transforms seminal essences into a bioluminescence that lifts the mind from habitual perceptions of time and space. And you're also talking there about how your, your studies in if we were to say Hindu Tantra, to use a somewhat mm-hmm. inaccurate term, um, yep. provided you keys, certain keys to the Tibetan uh, completion stage practices. So 
Uh, I'm not sure if Kamamudra was one of those. It, it appears that that's what you're hinting at here. But yeah. what were some of those keys and what can you say about about that time in South India? Mm-hmm. Well, that time was for me extraordinary because it, it was I was initiated into the Kaula, Kaula Marg, which is a esoteric Shaiva Tantra tradition. And, you know, went through the whole process of that. So Kaula, which can be sort of understood and translated different days, it's really the sense of a kind of clan. You're, you are through the fluids brought into a, an extraordinary intimacy within with the master, the guru. And in this case, which was very Maituna or the sexual yoga practice was 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 is fundamental because it's about the generation of fluids and how they're used in different contexts to bring about transformation and it's certainly understood in the Kaula tradition that this male-female duality uh, or polarity I should say uh, is the way in which the this kind of inner um, psychoactive um, energetics are, are, are aroused and transformed and circulated and um, so the experience that I had with that and particularly with Uma which was this extraordinary being you know who had been raised in a temple and the kind of diet that we were put on by the by the master and the kinds of I mean it just was the most I mean the kinds of interdimensional spaces that opened in the context of all of this on every level were just to me extraordinary because working very much with the you know the purification of the body uh, as the vehicle for this uh, transmission and um, the um, to arise um, uh, yeah, so it was just as you as you read from that passage, it involved a very much of a, a clear a clearing and cleansing and purification process, and then a kind of uh, the the building up of the the bindu or of the tigle of the inner essences through a diet that and was very different for her as it was for me. I mean, hers was the you know the crushed pearls and rose petals, and mine was was the gold ash that we made. And we also there were other things we had to bury under the ground. You know, it was a half and half, a, a, a whole glass full of onion juice mixed half and half with honey that I had to drink in the mornings, and that you know just brings about a kind of inner fire. I mean, incredible sort of flavor, this rasa that you're working with. And then, you know, the whole process of working with that interpersonal dimension of, um, and I know I won't go into all the depths of it, but, you know, the very, very powerful initiation with a partner um, who there's a bond, you know, beyond any other kind of experience that I've ever had before. And there were a lot of, yeah, things in that that just continue to me to be kind of the most profound experiences I've ever had and have given me such a you know, a profound appreciation for the feminine within the tantric world, both whether it's Hindu or Buddhist, and how, you know, sometimes the patriarchal monastic tradition kind of give lip service to it, but the profundity of it mm. was just, you know, I don't know, I'm just in, I'm in awe of some of the things that came through and of that particular woman in particular who became, you know, a divine consort for that period um, has certainly... Uh, affected my whole relationship with the tantra generally, and therefore to really understand the the, the profound uh, role and importance of the the feminine, you could say, matrix from which all of you know, the Shakta tradition is, of course, mm-hmm. a form of Shakta Hinduism. Yeah. And of course, we see in the tantric Buddhist world the way the Shakta tradition, Shakta Shaivism, was essentially uh, co-opted 
uh, but on externally, even in its art forms, completely, uh, um, I could say, you know, it was a battle. <laughs> you know, they were at that time historically. We know, you know, there were the, you know, the kings and princes of ancient India were. You know, people were fighting for patronage. You know, were, were, was the money going to go to the putting a gold roof on the Buddhist monastery, or was it going to go to the Shakta uh, yogins who promised, you know, power and sensual, you know, sensual delights? And you know, I think that Buddhists had to kind of get with the program and co-opt a lot of the best elements of the Shakta yogini, and that's where they really the yogini tantras, like the Hevajra and the and the Chakra Sambara, sort of emerged out of that milieu. But then we have, you know, essentially, you know, these deities trampling on Shiva, trampling on. Um, but the principle of Shiva Shakti, of, of radical polarity of male female energy within the psychophysical organism, is really what it remains. And that polarity, you know, whether we call it, you know, Padmasambhava, Yeshitsogyal, or any of the Yidam figures of Nairatma, Hevajra, Shiva, it's, it's kind of Shiva Shakti uh, in the energizing feminine. Uh, the manifesting and the male coming into kind of radical um, dynamic polarity. So, yeah, that for me was very important because, again, the question you asked is how did that give a key to understanding the Buddhist tantras? And I felt it is that at their essence, the um, the inner core working with the inner central meridian, the Tsauma, as it's called, or the Madhyamadi in Sanskrit, uh, you're working with this uh, psychophysical transpersonal anatomy, if you will. Um, and to me, the practices that are done within the Kaula in this regard and the, and the Buddhist are completely uh, analogous and compatible. But what I found revelatory within the Kaula is because it's not a monastic tradition at all, you don't get this kind of cognitive dissonance that you get within the Tibetan Buddhist world where they're trying to make everything work and you try to make the Vinaya vows match with the Bodhisattva vow and match with the Tantric vows. It's basically, that's cognitive dyslexia to even try to make it work. And they're all the different commentaries that try to say, oh, well, one vow, you have to combine them all or another way, you super, one vow supersedes the other so that, uh, but, you know, again, it's just, it gets so messy. But the beauty of the kaula is it's radical and it's just it was made for kind of elite um, non-monastic communities in close affinity and association with the with the master so that you don't get off track and sort of take it off in your own way and then you can be radical you know the, the teacher i had was was very very wrathful when that was required to sort of in my case break me out of certain kinds of um uh, conventional uh, emotive tendencies. You know, the last thing you're supposed to do is ever fall in love with your consort in that way. Can you, you know, that, think of an example of that? Let's just say, well, yeah, I can. I mean, in, in, very simply, um, you know, the, the intimacy and the connectedness with the consort, I, I fell in love. <laughs> it was so magical. And, um, but that wasn't the point at all. And so when he would see this kind of, the emotional engagement that was taking her out of her own space that she needed to be in. It was also my falling into another level of um, almost cultural conditioning of what we associate. And when we bring sensuality and emotion and romance into it, you know, this was he he would check that and he would see it 
and he would bring it back through various ways. He said, don't think of this as Buddhist. You know, this is not about Buddhist detachment at all. He said, that's a pathology. He said, you know, you're, he said, you know, he says, that's just, what do you call it? He said, it's a psychic pollution of your lamas. Very interesting. He was very critical in his own way of Buddhism, this idea of the cult of detachment uh, as being a pathology. It was very interesting because he'd been trained as a medical doctor as well as being, you know, kaula. So he, he you know, he knew this world. Uh, but he could also, so the beauty and the heart and the the power of that, very human connection that I had with him as a guru, but also who you know I loved as a teacher, uh, but who was so, um, in a way, able to observe, and I think in very, very powerful and useful ways, my own tendency to kind of fall into, um, let's say, a kind of romanticism with even the practice brought me back into what we can also see in the Buddhist tantras is how why they say, you know, you're not introduced to the karma mudra practices until a state of maturity in which emptiness and equanimity have been firmly established within the psychophysical organism. And yet we also know that within the same Tibetan Buddhist traditions, they say, well, actually, karma mudra is the fastest way to generate those, those, um, that inner fire. And if you can work with that, then it all depends on the, the capacity and the individual disposition of, uh, um, of, a, of an individual student and what the teacher sees as being um, their capacity to, to work with particular kinds of practices. The trouble was that with the institutionalization of tantric Buddhism, everything became formulaic. And then you had mm. to go through such and such and such to get there, but that wasn't the way it was originally. It was much more, I think, the way Chantra Rinpoche taught me. It was based upon, I'd come out of a retreat and he would like ask a whole set of questions dot, dot, and based on my responses then he'd give me the next thing to do and send me off to another cave or to another way of practicing it was all based upon that deep and intimate um you can say a dialogue of um what happens to the mind when it's put into a kind of uh, volatile um contexts and then he would chat you know he'd work with that and i think that to me is really with the beauty of tantra is to work with that edge of where we are find ourselves existentially at the edge of our own capacity then to push through those boundaries and limits to a higher kind of synthesis. Yes, I think that um, interest in your experience having applied the practice being fundamental to the next set of instructions you're given or the next exploration that's opened up to you, I think would be quite foreign to many Western let's say, enthusiasts of, of Tibetan mm -hmm. Buddhism or followers of Tibetan Buddhism, it's one's own experience is not a relevant aspect of the training for, for many, uh, from what I've heard, from, you mm -hmm. know, from, from talking to people who, who follow that tradition. You mentioned that the close relationship with the teacher mm -hmm. is what prevents one from wandering off in the name of innovation or diluting in the name of innovation. And mm -hmm. you also mentioned that the uh, these sorts of inner practices have tremendous power. And one of the the justifications for keeping them uh, secret has been, uh, from what I've seen, that they're so powerful that you know regular folks are going to injure themselves, or they're powerful, and with great power comes great danger, like driving a very fast car or something like mm -hmm. that. Yeah. And so it's only for sort of high-end people or high-end practitioners. I'm curious about your thoughts on how can how innovation and if you want quality control mm -hmm. uh, can can come together um, mm -hmm. going forward. 
not quality control necessarily from an institutional point of view, but even from the individual practitioner's point of view. Right. Uh, one, one, wants, one wants to do it properly, so to say. Mm -hmm. One wants to, you know, not to sh uh, take shortcuts, uh, mm -hmm. for instance, uh, in the name of, uh, of one's own idea of innovation. What are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, so in this context of the relationship of some of these often very radical and dynamic practices within the Tantra tradition, whether it's Hindu or Buddhist, that really can push the psyche into kind of, let's say, uh, the field of danger, <laughs> just even in terms, as you say, uh, you know, the, the destabilizing qualities, which of course is what they're designed to do. Um, but then if there isn't the capacity to sort of integrate that level of experience, I mean, we can, of course, correlate that with even you know the use you know the use of psychedelics for example i mean there can be kinds of experiences that take the mind into spaces where it has no reference points and if there isn't the capacity to sort of bring that back into a the container if you will um you know they can be very destabilizing in, in a in an unuseful way so chatter Rinpoche, very interesting in all of his teachings and even the ones that are sort of been published he always sort of ends his um Kind of as it were, as teaching says, advice to people generally has always been to practice according to your capacity. So this is sort of very interesting as a phrase because it's something definitely he said repeatedly, and it also meant that there were different levels of practice that were appropriate to different people individually according to their ability to kind of either uh, relate, you know, to whether it was a maha yoga, you know, to use the the nigma. Uh, kind of um, formulation, either Maha Yoga, working with the creative imagination through deity yoga, or the Anu Yoga practices, working with the internal anatomy of energy and breath, or the Ati Yoga, you know, basically Dzogchen, where it just this basically the whole practice becomes one of a, a radical uh, recognition of the the inseparability of the outer and inner elements and, and mind and and experience. Um, but if to give teachings of one kind to somebody who's not suited for it can just bring them into, um, yeah, can actually just be less effective in trying to bring about that final result. So I think this is where, you know, the guidance from the teacher is, is optimally the kind of way in which uh, these kind of practices would be transmitted. So for example, with Tumo, I'd like to give another example of how Tukurigin, you know, when people approached him for the Tsalung practices, the working with the inner energies in Tumo, he said, he said, well, his approach was so radically Dzogchen, for example, he would say, you're doing Tsalung and Tumo and all that, it just brings you into the world of hope and fear. And I said, I remember asking him about this once, and he said, well, because it can generate so much bliss, and then when the bliss sort of naturally kind of subsides, you just want it back, and so there's always the sense of trying to use a practice to generate some kind of epiphanic ecstatic experience that just isn't really the point because the point is much more one of equanimity and just this expansive state in which if states of excel you know of kind of amplified bliss aren't really the point at all uh and that's again the fourth bliss which is just this you know this total ease and you know where everything dissolves into kind of a kind of luminous equanimity so this is where he felt in his example um that the these more radical uh, physical yogas um, could uh, could lead one astray because it would bring you into the world of hope and fear, which is essentially a metaphor for samsaric mind, you know, the cyclic um, cycle of, of desire and, and attempted fulfillment and disappointment. Um, and of course, there's another level of that where if people really practice some of these things and the breath holdings inappropriately, 
you know the hyperventilations you know you really can mess up i think your your neuropsych your your neurology as well as your whole uh and you know we see this a lot because there are a lot of practices completely outside of hinduism and buddhism where they're basically doing let's say the wim hof tradition of you know it's basically yogic breathing and pranayama uh and boom chen and the external you know bhaira boom chen, uh kumbhaka and adapted just into a kind of contemporary um uh context of just mm. you know, personal empowerment if you want to call it that uh and you know at the same time an immersion in ice water and things like that i mean i haven't heard of any casualties of the tradition but if you look it, it'd be an interesting area to look at because we actually see quite the opposite we see a lot of benefits coming from radical breath holding cold immersions and if you talk to the tibetans about that oh they're going to be hurting themselves well if we don't have evidence that anybody's hurting themselves is this just a cultural superstition that you're holding on to that has been enshrined and kind of oh you can't do these they're secret for, the, for your own good or is this just patronization on the part of an institutional patriarchal tradition that hasn't really done the research in terms of what we know today because we have plenty of ways of looking at radical physical practice in the west outside of a tibetan Buddhist context that works with breath holdings um you know from pilates onward you know it's like you know nobody's hurting themselves i mean if it happens it's you know it's a sort of anomaly but actually people are benefiting themselves far more than they are hurting themselves so one has to wonder whether that convention no mm -hmm. view is actually just a that's a self-fulfilling prophecy that if you hold that view of course and then you believe that you're going to be sort of, um, you know, subjected to the Vajra hells uh, for doing this premature, you know, it's, you know, whether or not the cultural trance in a way, you know, whether the, even the tradition itself can can transcend its own cultural trance that we all have as any culture where we just have certain kind of assumptions that are in a way unquestioned. And I think that's the radical kind of phase we're at right now, and particularly in terms of this issue of what's dangerous and why is it dangerous and actually calling that into question radically uh exploring that not just in terms of what traditional texts have told us over centuries and millennia but in terms of people's practical experience you know mm -hmm. are there people who have actually and and, and if there are casualties of three-year retreat which there are many even oh, in yes. bhutan oh in bhutan it's a very interesting issue because we're looking at people not as westerners we're looking at contemporary uh, Bhutanese uh, practitioners who actually develop psychological disorders as a result of solid of willful solitary confinement and yeah. this is I think a very interesting field to look at to think well you know we've enshrined this idea of three-year retreat but if the outcome is to desocialize and dissociate some you know the human mind from and without any contact even with your teacher during that period uh who may not even really have the social skills to recognize that integration is yeah. the the goal rather than just permanent retreat and say oh well if you're after three years if you're not really ready to come you know just put you back into another kind of incubational process and after i know one woman who's been in like nine years of successive three-year retreats and every time more and more desocialized and harder and harder for whoever to sort of come back into a way of bringing her teachings into kind of engagement with the world and to me i think this is slightly the uh, a um, uh, a flaw in the way that the tradition if you will is 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 uh, transmitting the teachings in um, our current age there's a kind of conservatism 
that doesn't really engage with um, and because there's so much emphasis on the rote learning, on the repetition, and not on questioning and critiquing, and which is really at the inheritance of our kind of contemporary global culture. If you don't bring that into the tradition, then it's just going to be a perpetuation. You will, an inability to distinguish between the superstitious elements, the mythopoetic, and the literal, and that becomes, I think, very um, let's say limiting. Let's just say at least in a, in a contemporary global context. Yes. Yeah, how little, how literally do we take Padmasambhava's manifestations, for example, or are they like enneagrams that speak to our own diverse uh-huh. spectrum of human nature as lover, as, as king, as, uh, as ascetic, you know, or do we take these as radical manifestations of a kind of superhuman superhero, you know, from a thousand years ago? These are these are the kind of questions that could be considered yeah. heretical in one context, but sort of obvious and kind of you know uh, in another. It's interesting that you're, you know, you're telling stories of your conversations with some of the most highly esteemed and influential lamas of the 20th century, as well as your other research, but who were speaking to this theme in much the same way you are. I'm curious, have you received any pushback or resistance for speaking like this? Because it seems, despite the fact that, as you cited, these these uh, authorities of the tradition, if you want, have, have echoed, you know, these, these themes, it certainly um, doesn't appear to have trickled, <laughs> trickled down uh, as uh, broadly, in, particularly in Western Buddhism, even, I think, in some, in some parts of Buddhist studies in the West, actually. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, uh, so I'm curious, either academically, specific, interesting, would that be interesting, but also in, in, um, in, in the more broader religious community, what sort of pushback you've had for saying these sorts of things? Mm-hmm. Interestingly, less than I would have expected. Uh, so, for example, with the first book, uh, the Dalai Lama's Secret Temple, when that came out, because it had all of the, the, you know, the images of the Lukong. I mean, I did have pushback from certain Westerners who were practitioners, who even I tried to give the book to them, and they put it on the top shelf of a of a closet, just so that yeah. they said, I can't, I can't look at this yet because I'm not allowed to. I haven't had the the wow. empowerment. And so I just felt, you know, here's somebody living in New York City, you know, a married couple who are both deep in the tradition who actually find it, um, you know, they accepted the book, but they said, well, maybe in a few years I'll be allowed to look at it, you know, but they would have to get permission to look at the book. So I just felt, and I just sort of accepted that as their own self-imposed limitation, um, interestingly. And that happened also with another person that I gave the book to, um, you know, who was a very advanced practitioner who just said, I, I'll put it aside Thank you for this, but yeah, I can't really even look at the images. Um, and I just felt, hmm, why do we actually create this kind of self-limiting thoughts in our own minds when the whole point of the practice is to dissolve our self-limiting perceptions? Anyway, that was their choice. Um, and so, and I had on that book, and that was quite a number of years ago, another sort of some Western practitioners who, again, were critical uh, that I would actually do that, but you know, it had the introduction by the Dalai Lama, who had been the one who I had never planned. I, I had offered a set of images, of photographs I'd taken of the Lukong uh, to offer to him in a private audience, and he's the one who said, "Oh, make a book about these." And I literally said, "Oh, isn't that sort of secret?" And he said, "Time of secrecy is over." And he said, "These," he says, and I, I'll actually quote this st- story because it's very interesting. And he said. If you look at these images, they all look, they're all like, look like Westerners, you know, and they're all, I had a long beard at that time and he tugged my beard and said, look, and they're all beard like you said, this is more useful for Westerners than 
to uh, you know all these multi-headed, multi-armed tantric deities. He said that's confusing, but these are actually human figures that were hairy like you, and this is <laughs> you know it says Westerners will benefit from this. So he, you know, gave me letters of introduction to you know to Kenzie Rinpoche, and I mean I were new, but also letters just asking them to to uh, explain about these innermost yeah. practices of Tugal, which I was like what, and then. And I talked to Chacha Rinpoche about that, and who you know, there's a historical kind of issue with, because of his having been uh, the teacher of the regent of the. But he didn't object at all, and you know, he came, was actually at my house in Kathmandu and all of these. And he said, and the only thing he said, he says Tibetans should be doing this. It's good you're doing this because I was trying to just bring through something that otherwise I thought would be lost, and I think he. He recognized, you know, so even as radical as he could be, he he uh, he appreciated that. And always, you know, when I would sort of go off into India and kind of explore into the, the, the tantric Hindu world, he'd ask me about the kind, you know, exact details about the kind of breath holdings, the way, and, and he was very interested in the comparative approach. And he had a great respect for the Shaiva tradition. I mean, I remember even on Shivaratri in Nepal, once we went down to Pashupati, that's where he wanted to go. And he got up on stage and he danced. Literally, wow. you know, when they were doing the Shaiva bhajans and and another time when there was a, 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 a you know, he just said, you know, we're all Shiva bhaktas here. You know, we all. So there was a deep appreciation and a recognition of this innermost connectedness between the traditions. So there was certainly not any kind of sort of blowback from from him on that level. Quite the contrary. And then with this latest book, you know, on uh, that really brings about the the, the Salon and the Chulkor in particular. It came, I think, at a very interesting period because uh, in Bhutan, where perhaps these traditions are being the most uh, preserved, uh, there had already been a radical, um, right when I started the book, the one of the chief advisors to His Majesty, the King of Bhutan, had talked about Trokor being really one of the great national treasures of Bhutan. And so rather than keeping it secret, he wanted to train one of the great uh, practitioners of it and to incorporate it into the this... Uh, um, kind of annual festival that happens up mm. at the um, at the Dochula Pass in December, and so they trained, and then and he the the practitioner didn't want to be recognized, so they made a mask of Milarepa that he wore, as he yeah. demonstrated the six yogas of the Trukor of the six yogas of Naropa to a complete public audience for the first time. So we know this happened historically with Cham, it happened with Poa. All these things were originally secret practices that had no kind of public manifestation, and then. In Bhutan, with the patronage of the royal family, they brought out Trukor as a national treasure. And as a result, you know, a lot of images from that same practitioner I've included in the book. And um, then as I started to interview, after that sort of, as it were, that was sort of out of the box, um, then I talked with many uh, lamas in Bhutan, interviewed, and they said, yeah, he said, actually, Salong Trukor should be the nundro, it should be the foundation of all of the, the Vajrayana, because unless we actually have control of our psychophysical organism, you know, all the other practices of Vajrayana are just fantasy. Yeah. So they actually did a radical, he said, that's what prostrations they said were originally, they were a way of trying to open up the, inter, the central channel, but now they just become kind of a devotional thing, and we've sort of lost the yogic understanding of working, of opening up the central channel. So this is what they said the Trukor is for, this is what it can be, of course, you can hurt yourself if you try to do these beps, the great drops without a perfect held breath. But, you know, we're not dumb in the modern world. You know, no one's going to do, going to try to do tightrope walking between 
the twin towers, you know, in, you know, without advanced training. And so it's again, a bit, I think, naive to think, oh, and of course the book isn't instructional in any case anyway, but I think it's, it's very, it's very hard to, to, to even fantasize that somebody will try to put these practices into, um, that could be potentially dangerous, like the BEPs. I think those are the ones that have all my understanding of, of tantric Buddhist practice in the Tibetan tradition. And actually, I'd like to bring out this point because when we talk about potentially dangerous practices, I think the BEPs, the great drops, where you sort of Mm. are up and you have to kind of crash land, as it were, on a perfect, on the buttocks, at the back of the thighs simultaneously with a held breath so you don't compress the vertebral um, column of the body. And I've seen a lot of, you know, very advanced practitioners, Bhutanese and Tibetan, who've hurt themselves quite badly doing the practice. But when you look at um, the evolution of these practices with the BEPs, we can see that, you know, there were the great the, the great drops the, uh, and the middle BEPs, and then the, what they call the BEP chung, the little, the lesser drops, mm-hmm. where you're just basically, it's like Mahaveda in the Hatha Yoga tradition. And if we look at the earliest iterations of these practices, because all of those are to kind of radically bring energy and awareness into the central transpersonal core of the psychophysical organism and the central channel. Um, but when we look at the earlier traditions, like the the Yutok Nintik, for example, that was developed very early by Yutok, who was the same one who developed the, the four medical tantras, we don't see any instance of the big drops. I think this was a kind of Kampa Eastern Tibetan innovation mm. that more is better so if we look at it in the more earlier and nintic traditions they were little drops they were kind of homeopathic doses that would actually bring a stimulation of the uh, of this sort of uh, central core of the body so i think this is sometimes where you know the kind of emphasis on more is better uh perhaps for many people uh that the larger drops aren't uh, are necessary you're recounting there people saying of these lamas telling you one has to get first some certain degree of control of the of the physical um of the of the physical body of the emotional body and so on uh in order and the energetic body in order for these uh certain certain practices to be to be more than simply visualization is it, that's a, a sort of pedagogy if you want that's that's echoed in the Taoist tradition funnily enough that that uh, sequence which is which is a tradition you've also explored i think it's really important when we look at let's say the Dao, the um if we look at the vajrayana tradition as it developed as a, at the interface for example of of um, shaiva shakta and shaiva practices in india at the time and it was such a rich uh, spectrum of yogic practices that existed within the the indian subcontinent you know, from the 6th century onward, when these practices started to be codified as so-called Vajrayana Buddhism. Um, but we also have, you know, very much within the Hindu Tantra, what was called the Chinachara, which was the Chinese way. And I think this is, because this occurs in early Shaiva Tantras, it sort of gives an indication that there was influence or exchange between the Taoist traditions of China and certainly with the Shaiva yogic traditions of India. And we know that, for example, in you know, the king of uh, Kamarupa and what's now, you know, in Assam, you know, actually sponsored a translation of the Tao Te Ching, for example, as a, as a where there was a basically a resident Taoist uh, master uh, in the one of the heart of the, uh, the Indian tantric world in ancient Assam, near the Ahom kingdom in Kamarupa. And uh, I think this is important because we have within the Taoist tradition such an extraordinarily sophisticated mapping of the meridian system. It 
overlaps with some aspects of the the tantric, um, but uh, in a certain sense, I think is more sophisticated. And there are techniques within the tradition that um, for developing and cultivating, you know, whether we call it, you know, the, the governor vessel or what we call the central channel or the, the triple warmer or the three channels, there are a lot of areas that haven't been fully explored in terms of how they overlap in terms of practice. We certainly know that with the sexual yogas that the, the Taoists were were great adepts and practitioners of that in the same way that it was developed, you know, in the Kaula Marg, the path of the Kaula in particular, and obviously in in the Tantric Buddhist traditions in India and Tibet. So I was very interested, you know, in this kind of intercultural exploration to see where the common denominator is between the, you know, the Buddhist Tantras, the Hindu Tantras, and the the Taoist. And Interestingly, um, the um, you know, within the Taoist tradition, as I understood, there is something called the Leishan Dao, which is basically translates as the thunder lightning path, which is interesting because in a certain sense, Vajrayana could be translated just as easily in that same way. You know, the first instance, the use of the word Vajra, which was this sort of thunderbolt held by Indra, who looks like Vajrapani, who looks like uh, Zeus, you know, there's this sort of interesting uh, link iconographically between the whole wielder this idea of wielding the thunder holding the lightning energy that's there is is actually our core kind of transpersonal divine energetic so the Leishan Dao um, and I worked with um, I visited several masters of this tradition through a friend of mine David Verdesi uh, who had been really focused on this uh, tradition and so he invited me to, you know, to Java, to Sumatra, to inner, you know, remote parts of China to meet with some of these masters who had Siddhi, who had absolutely beyond anything I've ever experienced or witnessed or even heard about in the Tibetan Buddhist world, the capacity to move matter, to penetrate matter, to do things that you would just not think possible. And yet at the same time were extraordinarily they were anything but monastic. They were very much in the world. They were mercurial, some of them very, uh, yeah, in other ways, you know, <laughs> interesting types. Can you recount an illustrative anecdote of that? Sure. Well, one of them is one of the greatest of these. Uh, There's a book about him called the, 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 the Magus of Java. This was John Chang. And he was first, first brought to the attention of the world in a, a series of uh, videos made by the so-called Blair brother, Lawrence Blair, in uh, called the Ring of Fire. And it was about the Ar Indonesian archipelago. And in the context of that, they, there was a, one of the episodes, I forget which, because this was like 20 years ago or more, um, they... This John Chang, who was an incredible um, Taoist master of the of the Leishan Dao, of the Thunder Path, and he could, you know, he had the ability to put chopsticks through tables. He had the ability to sort of just hold paper in his hand and light it on fire and then drop it on the floor. He, so when I met when I met him, uh, stayed for quite some time in Java. One of the most humble and extraordinary beings. He 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 had stopped. Um, you know, he really kind of kept low profile, but he did most of his work was was actually as a healer and doing acupuncture. And when I first met him, you know, just because he's just very open and, you know, he was just walking in boxer shorts, you know, it's tropical Surabaya in Java. And he just sort of said, well, you know, touch my touch my navel. So I touch his navel and I got sort of shot back across the room and he'd laugh because all he did was just kind of give out a force of chi. And then that was just this way of being able to talk as we then practiced. It was about sort of entry level into this, uh, the Leishan Dao, the different stages. 
but the the idea was that you develop this capacity and essentially in the dantian and the hara uh you bring you know, the yin and yang using the the chinese um um way in which it's explained into a, this kind of power and then you can spread that chi and use it in different ways he used it for healing so for example then when he started treating patients he would have me hold their feet as he did manip when he manipulated the needles with his fingers just like that um i would he said don't let go of their feet now or it'll cause them a lot of pain but when i did that just holding onto their feet I had this amazing currents, nothing subtle, going all the way up my arms, opening up the meridians in the heart, and then I would just close my eyes, and I had all this kind of visual uh, phenomena happening. He says, don't don't let go, it will break the circuit, though it'll cause them kind of acute pain. So I would just hold, and it was his way of introducing me, it was a way of opening the channels, even as mm. he was using, opening the channels and a healing capacity. Like Shaktipat almost. It was Shaktipat, exactly. And it was very much palpable in the heart and in the third eye center where I closed my eyes and it was just kind of like light displays. There was yeah. no way to do this kind of trickery. And it, it, was a, it was a state of bliss. And then on one of those occasions, it was my girlfriend that he was treating. And she just said Sifu, you know, which means that, you know, the, the honorific term for master. Because what she had without having any sort of introduction to the tradition, she had this sort of sweetness, she said, dropping from the top of her mouth onto her tongue. It was like, it was like honey falling. And he said, oh, he just smiled. But then, you know, you think of what's called the descent of nectar, you know, within both the Shaiva tradition and the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, but it's all sort of sim it's similar, it's uh, simulations and metaphor. But here it was very, very literal. And so with this sort of state of kind of nectarous bliss of the release of, um, you know, sort of hormonal, if you will. I mean, we don't really know what they were. Nothing could be recorded. But he did other things that were, again, to sort of defy uh, explanation. He did things with, for example, with water they would have in a closed water bottle, and he could just put the chi into it, and you drink it. It was like sweet nectar water that had as if it had spoonfuls of honey in it and then that became something we'd take back and we'd have you know a little bit every morning and then do the the yogic practices the the breathing practices essentially to bring about everything was about the hara was the dantian the cinnabar field as it translates which is really the site of the inner alchemy and which is the site for tumo and this is where and i talked to him a lot about the tumo practice in the tibetan tradition and interestingly he had very powerful it, it, it changed the way I do Tumo because um, he said he said the, the Tibetans do it wrong because they pull up on the perineum. And he says, actually, especially in the beginning, you actually have to completely let the perineum loose. You have to bring the energy down. He said that's why they never actually really attained and really don't really understand it. So it was very interesting to have from somebody who man could manifest it, a kind of critique on, you could say, these inner alchemical practices that are held in common between the Shaiva, Taoist, uh, and Buddhist tantric traditions. And so my interest was to kind of find the common thread, the common denominator, or as David Verdes used to call it, the you know this sort of universal algorithm that, that in mm -hmm. integrates these yogic inner uh, alchemical practices. And that remains my interest, because again, I think more than kind of just allegiance to tradition, it's important for us to discern what works from what doesn't. And then the other extraordinary practice that was, again, based upon uh, supposedly... Um, this is another uh, practice that's sort of at the interface of Taoism and uh, Tamil Shaivism, where the, the five fire practices, which is related to Tumo, but it's actually a way in which you open up the inner anatomy. And I think this is like, for example, this was done in Bali and, um, you know, basically kind of to the shorthand 
description of the first of the five fire practices is you have each each disciple is sort of given a like a great big iron chisel and in which you have to have in the there's a very specific space in which you do this the chisel has to be red hot glowing and you swipe it on your tongue <laughs> and it sizzles your hold and then you get this amazing corresponding reaction in what would be the mingmen point in the back lower part of the spine you then sit in meditation and your hands have your whole anatomy begins to open in an extraordinary way because of the way the tongue stretches that 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 uh the the hormetic um um uh, shock of the heat yes. it's a very interesting and again when we're talking about the pra dynamic practices that you know you can get burned literally yeah. in this case i did have a burned <laughs> tongue for quite a while but yes you can hurt yourself but you know that's the same through of any kind of you know, elite sports or anything like that, whether it's yeah. downhill skiing or rock climbing, we can hurt ourselves. Jogging. So, yeah, jogging. So we don't necessarily, you know, to sort of create a kind of mythology around the danger of these practices and even psychologically mm -hmm. or physically, I think sometimes is is unfair uh, mm -hmm. to, to even what the practices offer. So the five fires, and then there were different ways you would do that, actually. I'm sorry, that was the second one. The first one you actually is uh, on the navel where you use the red, the white, and the and a red thing was a ginger a slice of ginger charcoal and salt and it's done on the navel until the heat goes right through you and it, you're opening mm -hmm. up the channels through this process you it, this is the way you meditate rather than on a chart as you would do and we're talking about visualization which is i would say tends to get over emphasized in the tantric buddhist tradition because if we look at that comparatively in the shaiva and the Taoist, we recognize that visualization is just bringing us into our minds, into our conceptual minds, whereas what we want to do, it's about the experiencing the energy and following the energy rather than following your guided, conceptualized idea of where it's it's merging them in any case. But certainly from my experience in Shaiva and Taoist, it's about bringing about an energetic shift that then becomes the foundation for your practice rather than a kind of conceptual mapping uh of the whole project that's that's just totally thrilling to to hear these descriptions thank you may i ask you one last uh, uh slightly off topic of what we've been discussing question which i think will be of interest to the viewers several of my guests have been students of or have had relationship uh, with to some degree with kunzang dorje rinpoche the uh, great salung master uh, and so on. For instance, Nakchang Rinpoche, as you as you mentioned, um, and Barcha Dorja and some of these others. Uh, from, from what I understand, you also encountered uh, Kunzang Dorja Rinpoche. Is that correct? Yes. What, quite. What was that encounter? What? Yeah, I had. Um, so early on, when I was first living in Kathmandu from 1984, and I was very interested, obviously, in all of these inner yogic uh, tantric practices. And I, uh, so my first meeting, I think, with him was in 1984. So you know quite a long to 35 years ago and I went to see him and um told him you know was interested in practicing <laughs> it's very funny he just he took this copper wire off the shelf I mean he was a very dynamic and powerful I mean, he says he says stick this up your penis <laughs> and he said then you'll be my disciple and I'm like hmm okay that's a bit radical for me uh you know it's it's not high uh so you know it was just his way of being, which was to sort of um, test people, put you on the spot, challenge your preconceptions, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm saying, you know, say right now or later, he says, you can do now. I'll, sh I'll show you. And I'm like, hmm, well, maybe aren't there some sort of preliminary steps to this, et cetera. He was just, 
you know, again, he didn't want to waste his time with someone who wasn't going to be ready to do such a thing, whether or not he would have then, he might have just said, oh, I'm just, that will come later. But the idea was that certainly, as we know, in the, the Talung practices, part of it is opening up. And if this is the lower end of the the central channel, as it's understood in the sometimes it's explained as just being the perennial floor. So on this inner level of the uh, the understanding of the Vajra body, of this sort of dynamic, uh, energetic core of our psychophysical organism with the, the tip of the urethra for the male representing the lower end of the of the um, the central channel. So certainly with Kunsan Dorji, it was about uh, really pointing out that uh, all of the practices of Tsalung involve opening up this uh, transpersonal dimension of our human anatomy. Uh, and in this case, it, through this rather radical method of, uh, in his case, as he was presenting it then, the use of the copper wire to kind of bring um, kind of awareness, attention, and at the same time to open up any blockages within that particular um, part of this uh, this central axis of the body. So I wasn't quite ready to go there, and you know, Chaturimashi was my main teacher anyway, and I decided to, to, to you know, pursue things differently. But I saw Kunsan Dorji many times. I saw him, for example, very regularly, always at Losar, would go to his house, and he was a great, uh, he could imbibe lots of Chang, and his wife, you know, very sweet, so often went to his home. And uh, I was very interested with Kunsan Dorji because of his interest in the hidden lands. And so, for example, Pemaku, which is this greatest of the hidden lands that I wrote about in this book called The Heart of the World. So during the research for that book, and then my subsequent journeys to uh, the lower parts of Pemaku, on the, now on the Arunachal Pradesh side of India, or the Tibetan border, I did a lot of, I spent a lot of time with Kunsan Dorji where, because he had actually sought with some of these other great um, uh, lineage holders of the Dujum Terasar tradition. They were trying to open up the Yangsang, the innermost hidden part of the, of the hidden land. And so I was trying to really understand how he understood that as a great yogic practitioner on an outer, inner, and secret level. What does this Beyu, what does this hidden land really refer to? And that to me was, you know, the, for me, the most meaningful and greatest encounters with him was explaining about the outer hidden land, you know, which of course that he was also searching for the door in a very specific place he described that they were trying to reach. On an inner level, it was about this sense of practice in which the inner elements of our own psychophysical organism become in radical kind of uh, commingling with the outer elements of nature in a very, very powerful place of unsullied uh, nature, um, you know, where the elements are particularly powerful on an external level of nature, and then on the innermost level, in which that experience of non-separation with all phenomena arises, which is the entryway into the Yangsang, into the innermost hidden land, inseparable from our own enlightened mind, our own enlightened awareness. But he talked very wonderfully because of his whole uh, emphasis in his own practice on the inner channels, on the central channel. He also always remembered about my, you know, he'd always laugh at my, uh, that I that he'd scared me away early on, you know, by bringing out the copper wire. So he also, also would refer back to that um, in terms of how he would explain how one enters the hidden land and you know it's also he you know he referred to it in his own sort of wonderful poetic ways as a as a seduction process because all of all of Pemaku is, is configured as the body of this tantra goddess Vajavarahi 
in the hidden land. You have to follow up her uterine channel and you have to enchant her. You have to make offerings to her like you would with any woman. And you have to sort of, there's a sort of foreplay at the pilgrimage and keeping pure vision. And so it was a beautiful description of an engagement with the most, you know, elemental nature on the planet, I think, uh, and configured as the body of a, of a goddess and how that would then apply to how one in a way encounters this kind of numinous landscape and at the same time how you would apply that in everyday life in relationship with your partner he was you know of course a married lama and not a renunciate so there was a beautiful sense of play of metaphor of um multiple dimensionality of meaning and that to me that's really i'd say the takeaway gift of my encounters was uh with uh Kwonsan Dorji Rinpoche is that you know it was nothing was ever literal it was a sense of play he would watch how you responded to something everything was in living dynamic poetic um kind of um dance between metaphor and literalism and to me that's the key to really entering into the tantric buddhist world so in that sense he was a great teacher because he he embodied that uh, rather wonderfully mm, that's fa- that's so fascinating um, Ian, I think the viewers and listeners can see the meeting in you of that well-trained, uh, academically uh, rich mind with your penchant, if you want, for first-hand experience and uh, I'd say more than a small dose of recklessness. <laughs> it makes for quite a wonderful combination. Well, it's been, it's been my path. Yeah, it's it's so tremendous. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time here on the podcast. How can people find out more about you if they wanted to? Of course, your books are available everywhere where books are sold, but your website and so on. How can people reach you? Uh, probably the best way. I mean, I have a website that's uh, almost dormant, but it, nonetheless, it's there. And I, I keep claiming that I'm going to revamp it. And I've just been so busy with other books and other projects that I haven't gotten to that. But uh it does exist as, as www.ianbaker.com, and I think there's just a single image there that says, you, if you can't reach me on this email, then you can reach me at you know ianbaker108 at gmail.com. I will get to this uh, website by the summer, but I've just got so many really uh, pressing projects at the moment. And uh, then people can reach me at ian at ianbaker.com. And... I do get a lot of people actually reaching out to me through the uh, through the website this way, asking about possible trainings, possible uh, things that might happen in um, Bhutan, which I'd alluded to in some public talks that I gave earlier this year. And that is definitely still in the plans, but it won't be. I've had to put it off from this spring as it was originally planned, and it will happen next uh, in March uh, and April of 2021. People are welcome to reach out to me that way. And this was through some very, very highly qualified yogis in Bhutan who also feel strongly that this is the time for the six yoga tradition to be more um, presented, not after years and years of sort of, as it were, apprenticeship, but actually can be understood. And there's a sort of a preliminary practice dimension uh, to the six yogas and this is coming through a particular stream of practice as it was taught by a great Bhutanese uh, Tibetan Lama, Lama Serpo. So that will happen as a, and I will probably do this on an annual basis, probably in April, starting in April of 2021. Beyond that, um, I will start on the website also putting up some of the museum projects and exhibitions 
that I'm involved with. I'll just mention one of those right now because I think it will be quite groundbreaking. There'll be a Tantra exhibition at the British Museum opening at the very end of April, and there'll be a great Bhutanese yogi coming over to do the sand mandala, not of uh, the kind of conventional kind of um, healing Buddha in the center, but actually of the Kurakula mandala was the 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 emanation of hevajra as the magnetizing dakini so this whole exhibition is going to be really looking at tantra as it kind of transcends uh, doctrinal boundaries between hinduism or buddhism a wonderful curator for that Emma Emma ramos and she's putting together a great program uh not just uh the exhibition itself but some of these sort of events that will surround it so i'll be actively involved with that mandala uh, bringing this yogi from Bhutan and sort of associated events that will be taking place at that time would be interesting for people to look out for. So end of April, beginning of May of this year, and then events next spring for sure in Bhutan. Wonderful. I actually attended your secret uh, Temple of the Dalai Lama's exhibition in London, and I didn't know you were behind this this new one. I've actually already made plans to, to see it uh, in, in uh, July, August, funnily enough. So I didn't know that that was your, you were behind that. I'm not, no, I'm not behind it. There's a friend of oh. mine, Emma Ramos, who's the curator, but I've been asked, there are certain parts of it. I'll be giving an opening talk, for example, in the first week I that see. it opens. And uh, But then I am working on another exhibition at the Victorian Albert Museum for 2023, which will be a, a very experiential immersion into the tantric Buddhist world. So that's still in its research and development phase. But as I said, curation, I think now is a way in which tantric Buddhism can move away from uh, monasteries into museums and therefore into if we look really at the etymology of museum it was a place of the muses it was a place where we can be inspired to uh, uh, and go to as a kind of intensive uh, immersive experience so this is my vision now for bringing tantric Buddhism from monasteries to museums as a source of inspiration and uh, that can be relevant to contemporary practitioners Wonderful. Ian Baker thank you very much Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.